few weeks ago, I told you about a difficult conversation I was having about a fan that's in our guest room. I picked this fan out. I like this fan. I think it's a, a very masculine-looking fan. It's, it's got character, and, and we're having this difficult conversation about my wife wanted to, uh, to, to repaint it, have it sprayed, and so I'm now going to show you the results of that difficult conversation. <laughs> and, and the funny thing is, it, it, it looks okay. The funny thing is that... Uh, it was, it was up like that for two weeks, and Gail said, how do you like the fan? And I said, what? I, I, I'd been in and out of that room a dozen or more times, and, and in, in two weeks, I hadn't even looked at it. So uh, it now sort of fades into the ceiling, and it's really invisible, and that's just such a wonderful thing. That's such a wonderful thing. And so then we had a, uh, I'm going to give you a little peek behind the scenes of what goes on in our home sometimes. Uh, we had a, a difficult conversation just the other day. Gail pulls a sport jacket out of the closet. She says, it was like way in the back. And she said, this has been in the closet for a long time. Do you have any plans for this? And I said, well, uh, it's, it's a size too small, but I'm holding on to it because I really like it. And I'm thinking that maybe someday I will shrink and I'll get back into it. And she looked at me and she says, you're not going to shrink. And I said, yeah, I think, I think I could shrink. She goes, there is no way you're shrinking. Yes, I can shrink. No, yes, no. Uh, you know, but the end result was I got to keep the jacket. So I'm out of fan. I'm in with the jacket. Right now, it's 50-50. We're even in the difficult conversation department. And then the, uh, the other, actually yesterday, I was driving up Laskin Road, and I saw this license plate. This is a person who doesn't want to have a difficult conversation. Talk to the paw. Talk, talk to the paw. And then I thought about it. I thought, maybe this is one of your cars. You know, maybe, maybe your talk to the paw is out there this morning. Uh, if you're out there, raise your paw, please. Okay. <laughs> Difficult conversations, they abound. They're just a part of life. It's just how it is. Uh, there's a great book about that topic called How to Have That Difficult Conversation You've Been Avoiding with Your Spouse, Adult Child, Family Boss, Coworker, Friend, Parent, or Someone You're Dating. This is by Henry Cloud and John Townsend, another great book from Cloud and Townsend. And in this book, they state it this way. Many of us live in two worlds when it comes to relationships. In one world, we have friendly conversations in which we avoid all disagreements. Everything is good all the time. Let's just keep everything okay. In the other, we have major conflict-type conversations and tear everybody and everything up. In the first world, we have connection without truth. And in the second, we have truth without connection. God did not design us to live in these two worlds. Our connections are best when they are truthful. And our truth is best when we are connected. Our connections are best when they are truthful. And our truth is best when we are connected. The Bible calls this truth in love. Let's look at three biblical stories to see how this works. 2 Samuel chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. This is right after the incident with Bathsheba. Uh, a husband uh, lost his life because of, of David's greediness. 
The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Verse 13, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And so you see in this difficult conversation, some of the, the component parts of a difficult conversation, uh, Nathan uh, has to make a decision. He has to go and confront. He has to confront something that is wrong. He has to confront, confront something that's, that's a great injustice. And he has to do this with the king, the king who has power over everything and, and everyone. And so he, he puts together a story, which means that he had to think about this. Uh, he thought about it and he thought about it and he thought, if I just go to David and I say, you got Uriah killed. How dare you do something so heinous as this? Uh, that probably wouldn't have gone very well. And so he thinks, how can, I, how can I do this? How can I present this? And in his great wisdom, he puts together this story of the little ewe lamb. And, and suddenly, you know, David is, is caught up in that story and he, he catches the, the full meaning, the horrible meaning uh, within that story and he puts judgment upon the person and that's when Nathan holds up the mirror and says, that, that's you. I told that story because it's you. It's what you did. At first, at first David is very, he's very angry. He's very angry. And then he becomes humble. And he, he understands the, the great crime that he's done. And he, he goes before God with his, with his sin. And he begins to, to seek forgiveness. Um, you see the, the results of a difficult conversation. They, they bring uh, a sense of balance. Uh, they bring a sense of ownership of, of somebody's wrong behavior, uh, but they're also very risky. Uh, and they also have to be carefully crafted and, and thought about and planned out. And you begin to see all those different components as you look at this, this ancient story from 2 Samuel chapter 12. Let's, let's move to Nehemiah chapter five for another incident of a difficult conversation. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we, we, and our, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain, which is basically saying, we, we've all got to stay alive. We all have to have a right to live. 
Others are saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine, which is to say, you know, the, the economy is tanking, and this isn't good for us, and we don't know what to do. Still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. And so here, here you have the poor crying out against those who have and who are, who are manipulating them and using them for their own good purposes. And they're all in the same family. They're all brothers and sisters. They, they all should be caring about each other at a much higher level. Nehemiah was in charge. And he said, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I was very angry. This is a different kind of of anger in a way than the anger that David had. But what we always have to remember about anger is that anger is a secondary emotion and it always covers something. It always covers something. And if you can peel away anger, you can find out what it is that has to be done, what the real issue is. I was very angry. So what does Nehemiah do? Again, just like Nathan, he takes time and he thinks about it and he thinks about what he has to do. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. He let reality be the leading edge of his difficult conversation. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. This isn't just a one-on-one difficult conversation. This is a whole community that needs to come together and hear hard truth. I called together a, a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were, who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. In other words, they knew they were caught. They knew they were wrong in that moment. A humility began to sweep over them. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. What you're doing is not right. And in a difficult conversation, there's always something that's not right. There's always something that has to be put right. Shouldn't you walk in fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the usury you are charging them, the the interest, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. And so the, the difficult conversation has a good result. But there's, there's something that gets added on here that's very important, and we can't, we can't fly over it. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. You see, it's not good enough just to, to say we're going to change. There has to be accountability for the change. The, the conversation has its fulfillment in accountability. And so Nehemiah knows that. And as a leader, he says, okay, we're going to bring the priest in and you are going to take an oath that you will follow through. And once 
they take this oath, then the priests know and the priests are going to follow up. There's going to be checkpoints and, and conversations that continue. And so all of these are components of difficult conversations. Pondering. Saying the truth. Saying it in a forthright way, but also in a way that, that really respects the whole community. Putting things right. Accountability. And then one more biblical story. This one, one of my favorites, and we've spoken about it before, but let's talk about it today in terms of a difficult conversation that God had to have. Revelation chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Laodicea writes, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. That means this is, this is Jesus about to speak to this church. I know your deeds, that you are neither You are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your eyes, cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. And what he's doing here is this is, this is the late first century. And so the church has been in develop, development now out of Jerusalem uh, for some 60 years, 60, 65 years. And in that time, it's... It's about the time of my entire lifetime. In that time, the church has gone from being a, a celebratory community where everybody is, is humble and everybody knows in, in a personal way the grace of God and everybody takes care of each other to a community of people who think they have it all together and who look great on the outside. But on the inside, they're just back to, to political maneuverings and to manipulations and to to even making God again kind of in their own image, not being pliable in God's hands anymore. And this breaks the heart of Christ. And so he speaks to them and he says, you you think you've got it all together and you don't. And this verse uh, about, I counsel you to buy for me gold and uh, so that you can become rich in white clothes, so you can cover your nakedness and salve to put in your eyes. What, what that means is, is I'm counseling you to come back to me. It's all about the relationship. The truth is only in this relationship will you ever begin to understand ministry and mission and my calling. And only if we do this together does it work. And it echoes the words that he used that we talked about recently in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches apart from me. You can do nothing. But he had to have this difficult conversation with this early church. And since it's all based on a relationship, he he says that to those whom I those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. I'm doing this, I'm having this conversation because I love you. So be earnest and repent. Repent always means change your mind, change your mind, change the way you're thinking. You're thinking this way, you gotta think this way. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And he gives this intimate picture of relationship that we all understand having 
having dinner together, talking together, heart to heart together. We will do this together. But when you let pride have its way, you end up broken in a very weird way. Be humble and you will be the church that I've called you to be. It was a difficult conversation. Nehemiah had a difficult conversation. Nathan had a difficult conversation. But each one allows for a turning. Each one allows for something new to come forth. Each one has a goal in mind. Let's look at some of the possible goals for some of our difficult conversations. I want to leave the conversation with zero confusion, complete confidence that this is over. That's a goal. I want to leave the conversation, conversation having said that I care about the person. That's exactly what Jesus said to the people at Laodicea. If you just let me in, I'm going to come in. I care about you. I love you. I want to leave the conversation having said very clearly, not only that it is over, but also why. That can be a goal of a difficult conversation you need to have with someone. I want to leave the conversation having said that I want absolutely no further relationship or contact with the person. I want to leave the conversation having said that if the person ever contacts me again, I will call the police. It's a sad goal, but that's a goal. I want to leave the conversation having said that I do not want the relationship to end at all. What I want to end is a pattern a broken pattern, but it is her choice or his choice whether or not she or he wants to continue. And if they do, they will have to fulfill certain requirements. And so there's, there's structure, there's a goal. I don't wanna give up, but some things have to change. Nehemiah had, had the, the noble swear to an oath. Some things have to change and you will be held accountable. The extent to which two people in a relationship can bring up and resolve issues is a critical marker of the soundness of the relationship, say Cloud and Townsend. Think about that. The extent to which two people in a relationship can bring up and resolve issues is a critical marker of the soundness of the relationship. If the relationship is, is sound, if there's something there that you're building upon, then you can handle the conversation. Let's talk about connecting in the difficult conversation, which is all about balancing grace and truth. First, be present and be positive in the conversation. Be there fully. Be invested in having the conversation and be positive about it. It doesn't mean be excited about it. It doesn't mean be laughing and smiling about it, but be positive that something can change. Be in a conversation, not a lecture. And you know what that feels like when it's not a conversation and it's, and it's a lecture. And here's where you have to avoid the shoulds. Well, you should have. Well, if you would have, then you could have, and you should have done it that way. Well, you should have done it that way. And you just go, shoulds are like little bombs that you throw into the conversation. Should, poof. You know, should, poof. 
you know, it's like, it, you know, that's when you just have to stop, stop the shoulds, stop the little should bombs. They, they just don't, don't work. Be in a conversation, not a lecture. And the way you do that is when it starts to turn into a lecture, you just say, I think we just, uh, this turned into a lecture. It was started out as a conversation, but now it's a lecture. And that little should bomb that you just threw is not really helping. Can we agree not to throw should bombs? That's how, that's how you do it. Stay connected in the tension. There's going to be tension. All good things usually come out of tension. Art comes out of tension. Lots of stuff happens because, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to get, get somewhere, and that creates some friction and some tension. The Bible says faithful are the wounds of a friend. There's going to be some tension sometimes. Stay connected in the tension. Don't let the tension make you disconnect. Oh, it's ten, too much tension. I'm out of here. That's not, not a good move. Embrace discomfort, which is kind of building on the idea of stay connected in the tension. Embrace discomfort. It's going to be uncomfortable. But you don't have to embrace injury. If things get abusive, if things get uh, really just inappropriate, then you, you take a, a 180 out. This is not, maybe today was not the time to have this conversation. Uh, I'm not going to listen to that kind of language. We can do this another time. Uh, we're done for, for right now. I, I just don't want to go there anymore. Embrace discomfort, but you don't have to embrace injury. Monitor your emotion and behavior. Be aware of what you are bringing into the conversation. If you're, if you're trying to have a conversation with somebody and you're like this, it's like that's just saying that you're really not, not there and, and you're all wrapped up in, in the, in the tension, tension of the moment and you really can't bring forward something. Hugging yourself isn't helping, okay? And then if you have a feeling that starts to well up and the feeling is welling up and you're not even sure what it is, just say something is, is welling up right now. I can feel it. It's sort of like right here, uh, and, and I don't know how to say it other than I think I can shrink. I think I might shrink, and I still could possibly shrink. And it's this feeling I have right here. I'm sort of stuck on that. I'm stuck on the shrinking. Uh, plan your thoughts beforehand. That's what, that's what Nathan did. If he's going to tell that story, he had to plan that story. He didn't whip that out of his back pocket. At the planet, Nehemiah, it says he pondered. So plan your thoughts before you go into a difficult conversation or before you, you ask for a difficult conversation. Be clear about what you want. Know what the goal is. Uh, is this just final closure or is this just about let's get this out and then let's have accountability? What's your goal? Where, where is this thing going? Where do you see it going? Know that ahead of time. And always lead with grace and lean into grace. Grace covers a lot of stuff that, that we need God in our lives for. Cloud and Townsend put it this way, and this is just brilliant. The damage done by a lack of grace is more severe than the converse. With grace alone, you stand the chance of being able to have another conversation later. With truth alone, the judgment could possibly rupture the safety of the relationship so much that things fall apart. You can, you can beat people up with the truth. 
That's how we kind of started the conversation today. Truth without connection is just somehow, sometimes going to beat people up. Grace is going to give you an opportunity. Maybe it wasn't a good day. Maybe there were other factors involved that, that precipitated this conversation, not really going anywhere. But if you lean into grace, maybe there's a chance to have another conversation later. Psalm 85.10 puts it this way, love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Let's talk about forgiveness and trust. Forgiveness has to do with the past. Forgiveness is not holding something someone has done against her or against him. It is letting it go. It only takes one to offer forgiveness. And just as God has offered forgiveness to everyone, we are expected to do the same. Obviously, when there's a great deal of hurt, getting to the point of true forgiveness can take time. So it doesn't always happen immediately. You can't expect it to just click in. It could take days. It could take a month, three months. It could take a year. It's a process. Forgiveness is a, is a process very often. But it's something one person can do. Reconciliation has to do with the present. It occurs when the other person apologizes and accepts forgiveness. It takes two to reconcile. Trust, ah, trust has to do with the future. It deals with both what you will risk happening again and what you will open yourself up to. A person must show through his actions that he is trustworthy before you trust again. Let's look at one little section of the book here. I want to talk about the way our relationship is going to be for a while. First, I want you to know I accept your apology and forgive you for the deception and the stuff that happened. I want us to be close again. That's the goal. And the past is past. So I don't want you to think that I'm holding on to anything. I want this to work out. I want to be close again. I want this to work out. Past is the past. That's the forgiveness move. But we have been here before where, where things happened. You apologized. We got right back together, sort of the reconciliation piece, and nothing really changed. So this time, I want us to figure out a way to work toward getting back together. When I feel as though you are doing something different, I can trust. And so now tr the trust issue starts to, to appear. I only want to talk about it with a counselor present. That's part of the, the trust structure here. And then I want to decide how much time we should spend together until I know it is safe for you to move back in. And I will consider your moving back in only if you are getting some help and sticking with the program. I forgive you, but I have to learn to trust you again. And that has to be based on your actions. There are always three things on, on the table in a difficult conversation. There is you, there is the other person, and there's the issue. And you have to speak appropriately to each one. When you do A, I feel B, and I don't like it. I don't want that to happen anymore. Let's look at, at how that works. Joe, what is bothering me is something you do. Since we have been dating, you have increasingly seemed to take me for granted. 
Let me give you some examples. Last Friday night, you had not called all week, and then at four o'clock in the afternoon, you called and wanted to know what I wanted to do that night, as if you expected me to be waiting for you. On Monday, you left all of your rented ski equipment at my house with a note for me to drop it off at the rental place. You said that it had to be there tonight to avoid late fees, assuming I would just do it. When you do those things, I feel taken for granted. I want you to ask me if you want me to do something, like go out or do a favor, instead of assuming that I will automatically do it. It's pretty much over for Joe. <laughs> now, here, here's a situation at, at, a, at a workplace. This is a, an office. Brian, I want to talk to you about the way you talk to me. I want you to understand how it hurts me. For example, the other day when you asked me for, for the report in the meeting and I had left it in my office, you said, way to go, Einstein. Just when we need it. Or yesterday when the two of us and James were together and he asked me about that, that loan application, you said, she wouldn't know a good rate if it hit her in the butt. I don't know what you mean by these comments. Well, what he means is she wouldn't know a good rate if it hits her in the butt. That's what he means. I don't know. Men, there's no hidden meaning usually in what men say. Okay? Uh, I don't know what you mean by these comments, but I want to tell you that I don't like them. They hurt. I want you to not do that anymore. There's always you, the other person, and the issue speak appropriately to each one. In difficult conversations, there are bad motives and there are good motives. Here's what the bad motives look like. You want to punish and get revenge. You want to feel power when you have been powerless and now want the other person to be powerless and to feel how you felt. You just want to dump your pain and hurt. And all of those motives go nowhere. They're just errant motives. But there are good motives for difficult conversations. You want to bring grace and truth to you, to, to, to your and another person's contributions to a mutual problem so you can move forward. You want to correct something that's wrong or not working. You want mutual growth. You want to voice your desires or expectations, hoping for closeness. You want to confess your wrongs and make amends. Those are good, good motives for having a difficult conversation. You see, many of us live in two worlds when it comes to relationships. In one world, we have friendly conversations in which we avoid all disagreements. Everything is peachy cream all the time, and we make sure it stays that way. In the other, we have major conflict-type conversations. And tear everybody and everything up. In the first world, we have connection without truth. In the second, we have truth without connection. God did not design us to live in these two worlds. God did not design us to live in these two worlds. Our connections are best when they are truthful. And our truth is best when we are connected. The Bible calls this truth in love. And so this week, you might want to step into a difficult conversation. It's one that you've been avoiding, but it needs to happen. So think about the component parts of it. Have a goal for it. 
have the right moments, have, have the right motives as you get into it. Know that, uh, that you and the other person and the issue uh, has to be spoken to and pray and ask God to do something anchored in grace, led by grace. You might lean into grace one more time in a difficult relationship. Now, there is no letter from God today, but there, there is a letter. And uh, I struggled with this. I struggled with it, and I struggled with it, and I struggled with it. But this letter is from me, and it's to you. Dear church members and friends, this letter is from me to you. It begins a difficult conversation. First, let me say how proud I am of all of you. You have worked together to create an amazing church, a community of faith and life, doing great things. You study the Bible and meet together in small groups to encourage personal growth and discipleship. You have cared about the poor in tangible ways. You have served as teachers and technicians and volunteers and in leading ministries, and you are bringing life-changing opportunities to many. Your name, Spring Branch, your name is known around the world as a creative church that takes risks and wants to be a light in the world. All this is so good. Yet we can do more. We can do so much more. Today, I challenge you to do more. There are more children who are hungry. Will you give to feed them? My heart broke when I was in Nicaragua at the beginning of this month. It broke. As I looked around and, and there I saw and sat with children who on a Friday had a noontime meal and then they weren't scheduled for another noontime meal until Monday morning. And I thought, how? How do we let this happen? How does this happen that a kid can't eat all through the weekend until Monday? Again, they come in so hungry. Will you give to feed them? There are ongoing ministries that need support and funding right here in this church. Will you invest in them? There are more opportunities to reach out to unchurched people. Will you provide the resources for the work Christ gave his life for? There are more staff needed to lead and build ministry. Will you hire them? We are not at the end of the road. There is so much we can do to take care of high school kids and to take care of grade school kids and to push back against a culture and a world that wants to crush us. There are overwhelming imperatives to become everything God has called us to be. Will you own them? Here's how it happens. When we all make every effort to regularly give a portion of what God has given us to this ministry, the ministry thrives, it just does. Giving and generosity have never been about a monetary amount, however. Never, ever, ever. Not in the Bible that way. They've always been about a heart that overflows with thankfulness. A heart that asks the question, God, how can I best serve you today? The question is the same for everyone. Yet giving is different for everyone. It's easy to think this is a wealthy church. It isn't. 
It's easy to think someone else takes care of everything. There is no such person as someone else. It's easy to think I talk about this too much. I don't. The truth is, it's each of us doing what we can do that makes it all happen. Children get fed and adults get taught and students go on retreats and a new ministry is launched when we all make church a priority investment. Whether your gifts come online or in the Sunday offering or in an envelope in Wednesday's mail doesn't matter. It does matter that you're thoughtful and prayerful and regular in giving. When all of us do that, God takes care of the rest. God, how can I best serve you today? All I can do is pray you will hear this pastoral call from my heart to your heart and know that I love you too much to not see you become one of the greatest churches in the world. I love you too much to not see you become one of the greatest churches in the world. I'd like to ask you to make February the start of something that changes the future for all of us. Just ask the question every week. The question shapes and defines everything. God, how can I best serve you today? In love and grace, me. I agonized over that this week. I, I've been in agony all week long. And for the last three days, I was just constantly trying to figure out how do I have this, this difficult conversation? How do I say this? And then I was released to write that letter. The Lord released me to write it. And it was the only way I could come here this morning. And yes, it's a difficult conversation, but good, so much good can come out of this. My goal is for you to be one of the greatest churches in the world. You deserve that. It's within your grasp. You can do this. This week, ask that question. This week, have a difficult conversation. You'll be a better person. And God will smile. Dear Heavenly Father, we are humbled to be called into difficult conversations. We see them as Nathan had one with David, as Nehemiah had his, as, as Jesus had one with an early church. Help us to have the, the right conversation at the right time in the right place for the right reasons. Help us to, to have the right motives. Help us to put the components together. Help us to ponder and pray about exactly what needs to be said and what doesn't need to be said. Save us from should bombs and save us from lectures and uh, Father, save us from just dumping hurt. Father, create within us such a passionate desire to know you and serve you that we become real people and a light in the world. Take us into this week now, Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen.